you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. audience thank you for joining us yet again and downloading our content we appreciate that i am jake wiskirchen and joined by mike sudini my co-host hello michael hello jake nice to see you again uh our guest happy day uh, yeah yeah, i know we (laughs) but i don't actually see your face that often we we text all the the time but but it's not about us it's about our guest and today's guest is Yehuda Raymer, who is uh known as the pew pew jew in the Second Amendment community, you are a, a social media god, let's say. Oh, lower, lowercase g. An Hi. author. Yes. Yeah, but we'll get to the introduction. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. How's the weather in Texas? Rainy. Rainy. I could use some of that. Yeah, here. we've had uh, thunderstorms the last few days and always fun. Yeah, I love thunderstorms. We need some more, but, but then up here they cause fires and like all of California is on fire. And so our valley here in Reno Sparks area is covered in smoke and that's not fun. But uh, yes, as Mike said, you are an author and that's one of the, the reasons we want to have you on. You write children's books about gun safety and education and all sorts of things. But I'll let you do the introduction because you know yourself better than we do. Yeah, so my name's Yuda Reamer. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, moved to Texas six years ago. I write children's books on firearms safety, firearms education, history of the Second Amendment. And um, just, you know, I'm out there defending the the Second Amendment and trying to educate uh, Jews and Americans on their Second Amendment rights. And, you know, the the fact that it's the guns in the Second Amendment that allows us to live freely. Talk more about that, because I think people listening to this podcast may not always be uh, Second Amendment advocates or followers. I mean, we, we're trying to get the mental health community in here as well, and a lot of us uh, in my profession don't understand why guns are a, a thing even. Well, I mean, it's the great equalizer, right? It, it allows people to to defend themselves against whatever enemy comes your way, whether it's you know someone trying to rob you, murder you, I mean, whatever it is. Um, it's just, it's, a, it's an equalizer. It, it really does level the playing field to ensure that we as Americans are allowed to keep our liberties or or to defend our liberties. So, you know, it's something that I'm very passionate about. Obviously being a gun owner doesn't just mean you get to shoot people at will. There's a lot of education that goes into it. There is a lot of training that's involved. Um, You have to know the laws. I mean, it's not so simple, but you know, it is there to ensure that we are allowed to live freely. We are allowed to, you know, live life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, I want to get to the uh, the importance of your religious faith and being an Orthodox Jew and one of the, if only the outspoken one of your kind, 
uh, doing what you do, but, uh, because that's a super, super interesting story. And, uh, we were talking about that a little bit before we started recording, but I really want to focus for right now on the, on the children. Like, um, we, we talked to Derek LeBlanc who does children's training, uh, with kids safe foundation up in Oregon. And he's got a real heart for that particular demographic. Where, where does your heart, uh, find its passion for children and why, why children, why are they so important? Why focus on that? Well, I kind of fell into it, which is uh, interesting. When I bought my first gun, we're talking about um, probably 10 years ago, 11 years ago. I was living in Los Angeles. I was married with two little kids. I, I had a, a baby and like a two-and-a-half-year-old. And I bought my first gun. And, you know, we, all, we always hear about the Jewish guilt that your Jewish parents can uh, drop upon you. I know, I know Mikey's like, yeah, we get the same yeah. thing in uh, Catholic, being Italian. Right? Catholic yeah. Italian guilt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah so I, I bought my first gun. I, I didn't live in the home, but one night I was by my parents with my family eating dinner there. And my younger brother uh, was like, Hey, so you, when are we going to go shoot your Glock? And I mean, my parents had an absolute, I mean, they made Chernobyl look like a walk in the park. Right. It was just brutal meltdown they had. Uh, I'm irresponsible. They can't believe I would bring a gun into the home with kids. And it, it was, I mean, they didn't talk to me for weeks. And, you know, it, it is what it is. I wasn't going to shy away from the fact that I was a gun owner. I was always the black sheep in my family anyway. So I, you know, beat to my own drum and can do my own thing. So if my parents didn't want to talk to me because I own the gun, that's their issue. Um, but it did wake something up inside of me, me thinking like, yes, I have guns in the home, but now I have to educate my children. I have to make sure that they're safe. Mm. So I go, I went to the, num, you know, the, probably the first place most people go to is the NRA. And I found the Eddie Eagle program. And although it's a great program, I was shocked to find that all they talk about is what to do if you find the gun somewhere it's not supposed to be. Right. Mm. They don't talk about the four cardinal rules or, you know, range safety and I'm, I'm talking about specifically for children not for adults I mean, i'm sure you right. can they'll tell you to wear ears and eyes at the range but we're talking about mainly for kids and i was like wow that's crazy so i went to amazon i'm like okay i'm gonna buy a book that i'll be able to sit down with my kids and read uh you know read a book to them and i went to amazon and i couldn't find anything and i'm like wait 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 that that can't be Guns have been around for 400 years, right? There's no book specifically written for children on gun safety. And I started browsing the web, and I found a few books that are kind of for kids, but nothing that specifically delves into all of gun safety. So I'm like, okay, I, you know, I enjoy creative writing. I've always been a creative writer. So it's like, I'm going to sit down and write a book. And I pulled out my iPhone at the time. And I literally wrote the first draft of my book on the notes, the mm -hmm. notes app on my iPhone. And I immediately texted it to a buddy of mine who's in the LAPD. And he called me up like 10 minutes later. He's like, all right, dude, I'm going to correct it. I'm going to edit it. I'm going to give you constructive criticism, but are you sure there's nothing like this on the market? I'm like, nothing that I've seen. He's like, good, then you're going to become an author. 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. I'm going to become an author. Um, obviously, the story goes on. It took me five years to publish the book. Um, there was many times I wanted to quit. Uh, at one point, I got an agent. I got a publishing deal, and then the publishing company canceled the book, and then the agent dropped me immediately after. And then, uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I fell into writing children's books, mainly for my children. Uh, but once my first book was published, I was like, wow, now that I'm a published author and I have a publishing company, I can do this. So, you know, three years, six books. So, yeah, what's that like to have this goal, this dream, work on something for years? have a publisher and be represented and then get dropped? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a great question, especially considering we're talking about firearms and mental, mental health. health. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will tell you, it took me five years, about five years to get the book published. And about four years into it is when I got this publishing deal. Um, I found this agent and she, she loved the book and she's like, yeah, I'm going to get you a publishing deal. And it was with a big house, a big publishing house. And, um, I was just thrilled. I, I, I signed the contract. Uh, I signed the contract. Was it two weeks after I had my third kid? I mean, I was, I was on cloud nine. I was living life. And about three months later, and I hate the movie to this day. I had, I had my two older kids. I mean, they were, you know, they were like six and whatever it was, you know, six and four. Um, I took them to go see the secret life of pets and my phone buzzed. I got an email and said, everything's been canceled during the movie. Like I was in the theater and I'm like, this is a worst movie ever. Um, And like to this day, like I, I will not watch that movie with my kids. I don't allow them to watch it. Like I am so anti that movie. Um, but I, it hit me, it hit me very hard. Um, I went into a very, very deep, dark place. Um, I remember it was a Friday that, that Friday night I went to synagogue and maybe 20 minutes into synagogue. I just, I just walked out. I was just like, nah, you know what? Screw this. Don't care. You know, screw God. I, I just don't care. And, um, I, I went into a, a real depression. Um, at the time I didn't realize it was a real, like a, a legit depression, but I was, I mean, I didn't talk to my family. I was for months, I was just, you know, sulking around my house. I just didn't care to talk to anybody. Um, my wife tried to explain to me that I'm hurting the kids. And I'm like, I just don't care. Wow. And it was, I mean, it, it was, thinking back on that, I mean, it was brutal. Uh, and I, I got scared that, you know, as I was getting deeper and deeper, I wanted to quit. And then about four months after I lost the the book deal and the agent, my six year old comes home from school. And I know, I know the people listening can't see it, but, uh, Mike and Jake, you can see it's this right here. Uh, he came. He came home from school with a an assignment. Six years old, and it's the the topic is when I am fifty. And he wrote, 
when I'm 50, I'm going to be like my dad and I'm going to write. Oh, and it was at that moment when I realized that writing my book and getting it published, two new aspects to something that never happened before. The first was I'm no longer doing this book for me. I'm never, I'm no longer doing it to, you know, stoke my own ego and become a published author because I've always been the reader. I've always loved writing. So it wasn't about me anymore. It was now about my, my son. And the second thing that popped into my head was my kid luckily still does not think I'm a quitter because I quit. I mean, I, I straight up quit and he was sick. So I still had the opportunity to show him that I'm his dad's not a quitter and that if you really put your mind to it and if you really try hard, you could accomplish your dreams and your goals. Um, it took me another bunch of months, uh, but uh, maybe close to a year even, but there was a, a, a revival inside of me of, you know, I'm not taking no for an answer. I will fight through this. And, and I was still in, in the depression stage. I mean, I, I apologized to my wife and she knew why I was just in a dark place, but uh, she, she, I apologized to her. I explained to her. It's, actually, it was funny. The minute I got that picture, I'm, I just, I left the house and my wife got scared. She texted me. She's like, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm at Walmart. I'll be home in a few minutes. I came home with the frame. And I framed it. I put it right above my desk as inspiration. And like I said, about, it took me close to a year later. Um, but uh, I finally got a publishing deal with a very small publishing house. I, I People can't see this. Um, I started to tear up when you, when you shared that. My, my kid just started kindergarten two days ago. He's five. And I got a three-year-old. And I don't know what he thinks of me or what he would do in an assignment like that, but I guarantee I won't have a clue <laughs> when he does it that that's how he sees who I am. And that just, man, that's so powerful. Um, it's, it's crazy to, to think like how, how our perspective shifts when, when other people share their perspective of us, you know, and especially when they're children. But what's amazing to me is that, so there's so much, that I want to ask there, but I want to go back to the Eddie Eagle program. And cause I don't, I'm not familiar with that. I only recently entered into this, uh, this two a culture a year ago, even though I've, you know, grown up around guns and owned my whole life. Um, I just wasn't into the, into the following. So I'm not familiar with the program, but the way you described it sounds almost like we're like the NRA was perpetuating the stigma, which we're trying to fight, which is like uh, guns are not to be touched by children. They're simply to be turned over to adults instead of opening the door and inviting it in and educating and empowering, which is, you know, we wonder why we don't teach gun safety in schools. Well, that's why there's literally nothing published about it. Somebody would have to literally create a curriculum for that. And, um, and here you are doing that. So not only are you entering into a space that had never been touched before, and now you're going to, you set off this chain reaction to a new conversation about, why it's important that children become knowledgeable and not just uh, be shoved into the dark and be like, no, 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 don't, that's not for you. That's for me. Um, but also you're really, you're really acting as an invitation to other people to step into those realms as well, where it's previously uncharted. 
And, and that's inspiring in and of itself. That's, that's really amazing. But it, I guess what's amazing to me is that this went on for so long and nobody, <laughs> nobody bothered to go, Hey, you know what we should do? Teach our children. Like that's, that blows my mind. All right. You guys have been doing this longer than I have. What's, what, what's your take on well, it? I, I will tell you, look, I, as much, as much, um, as, as hard of a hit as the NRA is taking right now, the Eddie Eagle program happens to be a fantastic program. My only issue with it is, again, all it does is talk about not necessarily – it's not that they have a, are against educating children, but sure, their sure. goal is what happens if you, got, if you find the gun somewhere it's not supposed to be, which is very valid. Obviously, mm-hmm. you don't want a child who has no firearms training to go near a gun. So that's what the Eddie Eagle program touches. Now, I have a lot of adult friends, and I have – my 11-year-old, I feel more comfortable if there's a gun found on the floor. I feel more comfortable with my 11-year-old picking up the gun and knowing what to properly do with it than a lot of adults in my community because my son has been trained for the last five, six years. You know, I I do a lot of photography as well, and I work with my partner, and we're, we're always getting these very beautiful high-end firearms, either handguns, rifles, shotguns. And I take them home and I photograph them. And every time I, I take them home, um, my kids get excited. They all crowd around me. They're like, oh, my God, we want to see it. And I allow them. And and all my kids, it's amazing. Even my four-year-old now, he'll pick up this AR-15 and I'll, like, hold it by the barrel so he can actually feel like he's holding it. And his finger is off the trigger. I mean, granted, he's saying pew, pew and pretending to shoot something. But, you know, it's still – excuse me, it's still a, a learning process because he's the only four. Mm-hmm. But my 11-year-old goes to the range with me and the kid shreds on a course and, you know, going between targets and he's great. And he, he keeps the, you know, trigger discipline, four cardinal rules. I mean, he does everything. And it's just a matter of education. And so, that's where my book came in versus what the Eddie Eagle program does. Right. Um, but I look, the Eddie Eagle program has reached close to 40 million kids in 30 years. So it, that's not, I, I, I hope to get to those numbers one day. Yeah. I, w- I really wish. So Jake, like growing up, not being a gun guy, not being around guns, but having guns in my family and, you know, a pro gun family. Um, when I was little, Eddie Eagle is what I thought about when I thought about the NRA. Hmm. Um, and unfortunately I feel like they got away from that. Like they got away from that. And I wish they would have kind of like dived into that and made that more the focal point because, you know, there came a point where the NRA became kind of like a lifestyle brand, almost like an anti-liberal one, you know? Um, And they got away from some of the core things that they used to do that I think were positive that, you know, potentially the people that they, you know, started to hate, (laughs) you know, the left, the liberals, the Democrats, like that, they could have used that as a, look, this is what we do. We don't just, you know, do legislation, but we have this program and we do this with kids and this is the reason why, and here's the numbers. And I think they got away from that. And I feel like the new generation of people that either are anti-gun or gun neutral and just don't even know, they wouldn't even know what Eddie the Eagle is, you know, the Eddie Eagle program. They wouldn't even know. That really helps. That that helps me understand the context. And and I certainly wasn't throwing stones at the NRA or the program. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around, like you have this program that's, you know, been going on for a long time and you don't do actual education. Um, so that, that helps me understand it. I I appreciate that. And, um, 
now you're you're in a space where you we've got more gun new gun owners than ever before in history. Like this this is unprecedented, and I hate the use of that word because it's been overused, but it truly is unprecedented. No, nobody has seen what we've seen in the last six months with regard to new gun sales, and you have an opportunity to step in there and fill a void to teach people how to handle them safely, store them safely, educate their children so that they're not spooky and and, and afraid and uh, firearms are not something of the occult, uh, which is really, really exciting. And I, and I really hope that this takes off. I hope your, your book sales skyrocket because of this, um, specifically because of this single podcast, because we are amazing. Uh, but uh, I, I'm curious why the, why the deal got canceled. I mean, we could speculate, of course, about you know, nefarious um, things, but I, I don't know for sure, but I think they got wind that um, Julie Golub, who is a competitive shooter for Smith and Wesson. Um, she was coming out with a children's book as well. Now, our books are vastly different, but she has, you know, 40,000 followers on Instagram. And at the time, I don't think I even had an Instagram page. Mm. Uh, and she had this whole following already. Okay. So how am I going to compete with, right. with her? Right. Yeah. It was, so, it was a market. It was a market com- competitive. Right. Which issue. is yeah. funny because now... Now I'm actually friends with Julie and she's been a great advocate of mine. And, um, you know, we're not in competition with each other. It's like, no, there's a lot of books like her book, my book. And she's, she's awesome. And, and she's really, I'm not going to say that, you know, we're friends, friends, but I'm not, you know, I, I would definitely say that we're friendly. Yeah. You're not adversaries. That's one thing that I've been really pleased to discover is going through this, uh, metamorphosis engaging in the firearms community have realized that there really isn't competition. Um, I mean, people are friendly competitive, I suppose, but, that, but nobody's, nobody's purposely, uh, at least from my, you know, eyeballs <laughs> being the, the new guy, nobody's really like territorial or w- turf warring or, uh, talking trash about one another. There's it's, it's pretty refreshing actually. Cause I don't see that very often. Is that, has that been your guys' experience in your, lifetimes of, of doing this gun gun owners are, you know, basically have each other's backs, so to speak. And trying to, to me, I think the influencers have each other's back more than the overall gun culture crowd. Okay. Right. Because, um, you'll see if you go in and like, just take Colleen Noir's comments for one example, if you go in there and during a time of a hot topic, maybe like a bump sock ban or something like that, you'll see people literally go off. Um, and, and I think it, it hurts us more than it helps because I try to send people that are on the fence about firearms. Like, Hey, check it out. Go into the community. I've had people actually go to Collins's, you know, Instagram page, reading the comment section and go, I can't mess with you guys. Mm. I, I can't get with this. So I think it's more so some of the bigger influencers in their separate lanes, we can all look to the left and the right and just be like, Hey, you know, I really support what this person's doing because it's about two a, um, I don't know what your take on that. Yehuda. I mean, what do you think? I mean, it's interesting to the most part, you know, you have people having each other's backs. Um, you do have a few of these yahoos out there who, who stir up trouble. Um, they get called out for it. Um, I know there was a big, a big one that uh, one influencer called out another influencer 
about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, saying that, all, you know, the guy has no credibility. He says he was in the military and he wasn't in the military. He's stolen valor, this whole thing. And, like, the whole, I mean, the whole community went up against this guy. Like, dude, he, he has pictures and video of, from the time he was in the military. It's not like, it's not like he's hiding it. You know what I'm saying? It, so he got called out on that. But, you know, to the most part, um, to the most part, influencers have each other's back. Uh, my my real issue with the influencers are a lot of them are very afraid. Well, not I'm not gonna say afraid. They don't share other people's content, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, my book, and, I, and I'm not I'm not trying to be a victim here. I, I I don't want people to think that, but it's something that I've noticed, and not just with me, but like for example, my book on gun safety. There's nothing really like it on the market. So. When you have 150, 200,000 followers on Instagram and that people listen to you, why would you not want to share a tool that everyone can use? Well, because to them, it's advertising and I'm not paying them to promote my book. And that's the one issue that I have with, you know, influencers um, in the community, right? I mean, Mike, you, you and I have been going back for a while now. I mean, when you sent me that box of Walk to Talk America stuff, I was like, hey, you guys order a book. I'm sending, you know, I'm, I'm partnering up with Walk to Talk America. Like, it's one of the things that I'm not getting anything out of it, but it, I believe in what you guys are doing, so I'm going to promote it. Just like I'm, I'm a huge uh, Ultima Boots guy, right? I, I love their shoes. I The most comfortable shoes I've ever worn, and every chance I get – I'll post about the shoes. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a paid sponsor. I'm not a sponsor of theirs. I'm not an ambassador, nothing, but they make a fantastic product. And why would I not promote it? And I think that's one of the big issues that a lot of the influencers have is that if you don't pay them to promote something, they won't promote it. Yeah. when, When it comes to something like gun safety, well, Shouldn't that transcend yeah. anything else? Per- personal branding, yeah. Right. I, and maybe maybe that's just my unique perspective because our what we're doing with WTTA has been so well received um, that maybe it, it shaded my my view on that because I could I could certainly see what you're talking about now that you're mentioning it, and it certainly happens in the therapeutic community too. You know, somebody's got some really cool posts on how to take care of your own mental wellness, and it's like, well, I'm not going to repost that because that's not my content. They're not paying me. It's like, yeah, don't you just want to make Earth better though? Like, my goal right. is to live in a in a healthy, healed community, not to like figure out who's taking the most credit or like add to my bottom line that's that's ridiculous what good is a bottom line if you're watching couples arguing in the grocery store your kids getting beat up on the playground like who cares how how much money you make or how many followers you have when your own your own life is affected so for me it's it's just a bizarre concept when people won't share to make to to elevate everybody you know the the rising tide lifting all boats thing but uh, i want to go back to your your depression um at any point in there because it's a mental health podcast. Um, at any point in there, did you go seek counseling? Or were you even aware of it? Now it's looking back, you realize it. I mean, I, I definitely, I didn't seek, I, I didn't seek counseling. Um, at the time, I didn't know anybody. Um, I mean, I knew some people who were, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, I don't know which one I would have seen. But, um, I mean, I knew people, but, 
in my mind, it was just one of those things that you're like, yeah, I'll be depressed for a while, but eventually they'll get over it. Um, what what's talking gonna do for me? Like, mm. oh no, just keep plugging away. Like, I don't need I don't need someone to have me lie down on, or in my mind, it's like I don't need someone to tell me go lie down on my couch and tell me how you feel. How, how does it make you feel that you lost your you know your 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 book deal? I'm like, well, I wouldn't be here if I felt good. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, like in my mind, it was just like, no, you know what? Just life sucks sometimes, and it's okay to be pissed off, but event, you'll, you'll get over it with, with, what do they say when you lose a loved one, right? Uh, time, uh, he, time heals all wounds. Right. So in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'll be pissed off for a while. Um, sure. I can find something else to be pissed off about, uh, you know, a God for, and, um, eventually I'll just bounce back. But I didn't really think that maybe I should go seek help. Um, I didn't have any, any bad thoughts, you know, I didn't think about suicide or I didn't think of, you know, hurting myself. Uh, I didn't think of anything like that. It was more, um, it was more, I just wanted to be left alone in a glass house and let me take a hammer and bricks and beat the hell out of the house and break everything. Like that's Mm -hmm. the, I just wanted to destroy something. Obviously not a person, not myself, but I just want to get that aggression out and, and, you know, just, you know, glass house, just yeah. knock it down. I appreciate that. I appreciate the, 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 the honesty too, and the candor, because, you know, I think a lot of people go through that same type of thing and the same type of mentality. And, uh, I don't want to make this an advertising, an advertisement for psychotherapy because I'm actually, even though I'm in the profession, I'm actually in your camp where I go now, actually like people are pretty resilient and things do pass. And to your point, they did, right. You had this moment where your kid came home and, you know, set, you know, wrote down what he wrote down and shared it with you. And you're like, Oh, there's the moment. Um, now I'm out of it. So, you know, people might be listening to this be like, see, he didn't need counseling. Why do I need counseling? And, and that's true. That's absolutely true. And I think the point at which you start to recognize it's having an adversarial or deleterious effect on your relationships or your own personal health, uh, you know, important factors in your life, job, you know, that kind of thing, certainly legal, you don't want to get in trouble because of of your mental illness status, Um, then you would definitely want to level up and seek professional help. But to your point, yeah, I mean, you you solved it on your own. That's and I want to, you know, I want to point a spotlight on that. Um, which sounds a little weird coming from somebody who does what I do for a living. You think I'd be trying to get everybody into well, the office? I'll, I'll be honest. Exactly. One thing that one thing that I actually don't talk about a lot too is one a very big inspiration that I've gotten. I'm I'm 36 now, so we're talking about since I read it when I was 18. So you know, 18 years. Um, someone who's been a guiding light has been Viktor Frankl, mm. and. Uh, logotherapy, uh, you know, man's search for meaning yeah. has been one of the most influential books, especially as an Orthodox Jew, you know, how it relates to the Holocaust and, and how he came up with it really. Um, I mean, that, that in itself has been incredibly influential and has shaped a lot of my, my mind. I'm looking around because I have it here somewhere, but it, it's probably actually upstairs. Um, but yeah, to, uh, to the listening audience, if you want to check that out, Man's Search for Meaning is incredible. Um, the first 
hundred pages are about his experiences in a concentration camp. And he writes about the observed differences. He was a psychiatrist and uh, he's in this camp and he was allowed to live because he's a doctor and he, he had perceived value to the, to the captors. And so he, he ended up documenting his experiences and realized, you know, like there's a, there's a fundamental difference between people who survive and people who don't, who just kind of give up on life. And, and I, I don't want to give the book away. It's definitely worth a read. And then the, the second half of the book or last third, I guess, is about logotherapy, which is this existential based, um, uh, way of looking at how people can, can change. And it's very, very, very good. It's a, it's a short book. It's really easy to digest. And, and it's a, it's definitely a mind expander too. So I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Uh, it's cool. That it's had that big of an impact on your life. That's neat. Like yeah, it's, you know, you got to find that one little thing that can get you through anything. And if you can grasp onto it, you can survive anything. And, and, you know, uh, it's funny. My parents took away the TV when I was five years old. So I didn't grow up watching TV. I became an avid reader. And one author that I fell in love with relatively early, uh, I must've been about 12 years old, was Clive Custler. Uh, Clive Custler had, if you want to talk about someone who had probably the, mo- the greatest impact on my life would probably, I would say Clive Custler. And the reason why I say that is we've all heard the, the saying, you are what you eat. Um, but I've been living my life for a very long time as well as you are what you read. And I grew up reading about his character, Dirk Pitt, right? And Dirk Pitt, in my mind, what is like the ultimate male, right? The ultimate male figure. It's like, here's a guy who there is no gray zone. There's good and there's evil. He's the type of guy that can, you know, wrestle with alligators during the day and then wine and dine his girlfriend, who's a congresswoman at night, in the tuxedo, right? He's able to balance that that gentlemanly side and that that the, the it's called that that toxic masculinity side, right? That masculine idea of what a man is supposed to be. And growing up reading him, I fell in love with this character. And I've always, as long as I can remember, I've always tried to emulate being like Dirk Pitt. So, you know, I've always tried to be as masculine as I can, as I can, but at the same time have this loving desire to show, you know, my wife and my kids and this gentle side of me all the, but you know, all the while knowing that you can't be in the gray zone. Hmm. there's good in this world and there's evil in this world and you're either good or you're evil. It's that simple. And that's something that's also been, um, a huge, uh, insp- you know, a, a huge inspiration to me because this other frame right there, um, I actually wrote when I was in Israel for two years, I wrote a 120 page movie script and I sent it to Clive Kussler. Basically the letter said, Thank you for showing me. Uh, I well, I hope you can enjoy my writing as much as I've I've enjoyed your writing. And like, we're talking about Clive Cussler right here. We're, we're talking about uh, an author who's sold over, a, I think it's like two hundred million books worldwide. Six weeks later, I got a personalized letter back from him. And how I know it's personalized, he answered questions that I wrote in my letter 
And then he even gave me constructive criticism on my two 120-page script, meaning he uh-huh. read my script. And I'm just like, I was terrified because, right, like my whole life I'm trying to emulate his character, Dirk Pitt, and all of a sudden I get a letter back from him and I'm like, I can open it, <laughs> read the contents of what he wrote me, and never pick up another book of his again because he can end up being a total jerk in real life. Yeah but it was the complete opposite. And, and like I said, I would say Clive Custer probably has had the biggest impact of my life than anyone else. That's and I've cool. never met him. Wow. And unfortunately he just passed away like three, four months ago. So I never will meet him until, you know, one day, but um, yeah. That's so cool. That's, that's a great story. And I love how um, it, it, you're, you're speaking about balance and you're speaking about authenticity and it sounds like, your favorite author there demonstrate he exemplified it right he the, the character created in the book was really him you know he's trying to be as authentic to himself as possible uh, he wasn't living in some fantasy land and um you know came off as uh different later in real life you know so i think that's an important uh, lesson to learn and also for people who may be you know, confused or struggling or getting mixed messages from media or social media or their own home environments. The, the important thing is to, to honor your own process and be true to that so that when the day comes that you're off, you know, you're pushed into a, a different direction, you can be aware of it enough to make corrections, which, you know, go back to your, your depressive state after being having the plug pulled on your book that first time. Um, you knew that that wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to last forever. You'd practiced a very long time of knowing that where you were and who you were and so there, there was no panic, right? It was just, I know this is, I know the reason I'm feeling this way. I know that it will pass. This is temporary. And eventually you, you return to that, to that core. And that's really, right. really cool. I think a lot of people could do well to, to work on that. Mike, were you going to say something? It looked like you leaned in there. Uh, no, I was going to, so I wrote a script when, when I got out of college and um, I, I, the reason why we asked the question earlier that when I said that, you know, how does it feel to like pour your heart and soul in something and then get dropped by your agent is because I, I, and now that you told me, you just told me you wrote a script. Um, I'd love to like share stories with you because I went through this whole process where I was sending it out to, you know, studios, production companies, and you can't just send your script blindly to people. You have to get permission to send it because there's all these things, you know, they don't want, they don't want to be accused of stealing something. So usually if you just send a script, we'll throw it in the trash. Um, but it's really funny because uh, real fast story, like at one point, someone from Jamaican Airlines, some airline in Jamaica called me and they're like, sir, you left your script on the plane. Um, you know, we want to send it back to you, which is kind of funny because I didn't, I wasn't on a plane reading my script. That means I sent it to somebody who was reading the script and they thought it was trash. <laughs> so they left it on the plane. They must've read it on the plane and said, screw the script. Um, but I, I, you know, on a side note too, I had some success, uh, particularly with Danny Aiello's production company, who's you know, an actor out, out of New Jersey. He has a production company there or had one and gave me some really constructive, you know, feedback, but it was one of those instances where, the person who was reviewing the script and giving me all this feedback, it was really, it was like the compliment sandwich, right? Mm-hmm. There were all these positive things. And then it was like, wait for it in the middle where I failed. And then at the very end, the guy says, I really like 
your writing style. And I think that you're on to something. I'd love to see more scripts that you've written. And that was like getting punched in the stomach <laughs> because I haven't written any other scripts. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I wanted to say like, I, I, I appreciate his, you know, Yehuda's honesty about this whole situation because I've been there and I understand what it's like, you know, to, to pour your heart and soul into a script and think it's a masterpiece. And then someone's like, it's great but we want to see what else you've written. <laughs> You're just like, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> yeah. to keep going. Give, me, give me a year and a half. <laughs> I'll come back. But that's a crazy, that's a crazy story, Mike on, uh, and, and yes, I, I was turned down by over 35 publishing companies, 35 Whoa. literary agents. I mean, it's been, it, it was a long journey to get my first book published. Wow. So That's crazy. I know exactly about, uh, you know, people telling you to uh, leave, especially the crazy thing is when I started shopping my book around, it was right after Sandy Hook. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not getting this book published. It's mm -hmm. like, who, who in God's name wants to touch a book on kids and guns in a positive light right after Sandy Hook? Yeah. Um, oh, shoot. I was going to ask something. It just fled my memory. Um Anyway, that yeah, it reminds me of like when I graduated uh, my, my first grad degree and I was sending all these applications out across the country for uh, for, for jobs. Uh, and it was it was 2008 and the economy was just in the tank and nobody was hiring. And I seriously thought there was something wrong with me. And there probably is. But but uh, but I, I didn't get I didn't even get a sniff. I mean, not even a rejection letter. And I was like, how is this possible? Like, I got this crazy, awesome resume and. So I feel that, and I think I think the idea of you know us swapping these stories of misery is to normalize it for people who may be listening, you know, and they're like, okay, good, it's not just me. Like I know that you guys are looked up, and people don't know me. I'm just some dude, you know, who's on the coattails of this movement that's already been going. Um, but I know that people look at you guys because we all do it. We look up to our influencers and our our celebrities and um. And the people who look like they've got it all together, right, on social media, and they're like, oh, he, yeah, he's got it all together. And it's like, no, actually, uh, we had some really rough times <laughs> for a lot of years. And and that's okay because life does go on, and, the, and that is inspiring because now I'm, you, people can't see it, but you're wearing your Pew Pew Jew logoed shirt. I need to get one of those, by the way. Um, and I think, I, I think it's really cool and redemptive to say you, we, success is not without struggle. And, and that's okay. When you're in the struggle, it only means it's building to something greater. And I think that's super, super cool. Talk a little bit about you. You do graphic design and photography and you're a really creative dude. How's that going? Like, do you, oh, do you hold still, on, let me cut you oh, off real no, fast. No, he, he, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. This is, he needs, he needs some credit for this. He's responsible for the, the latest WTTA logo. Oh, you did that. I didn't know that. The, the ribbon. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, and he donated it to us. Thank you. I didn't know where that came from. I thought I thought maybe Mike was playing with uh, Photoshop in his basement in the deep deep darkness of the evening. I'm not that talented. Thank you. Yeah, I love that logo. That's brilliant. It's got the mental health uh, ribbon twisted in the in the middle of the W. It's it's awesome. Yeah. So continue, but I just wanted to give you credit, man, and thank you. You know what I mean? Like it, it's yeah. just so much better. It is. Look, you know, I I know what it's like to start off a company, and I had a lot of people assisting me when I started off. And although I don't want to say my brand and my company is successful yet, 
but in terms of recognition, it is. In terms of sales, I can use more. But uh, in terms of recognition, you know, it was really cool on my way to SHOT Show last year, um, sitting down at, at the airport in Texas, and these three big burly dudes, like, walk up to me, and they're like, hey, aren't you the Pew Pew Jew? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Who's asking? <laughs> Who's asking? They're like, hey, man, we love what you do. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like, you know, it was, it was a bit um, a bit of an ego boost. So, uh, you know, the, the recognition of the brand is getting out there. And eventually, you know, hopefully I'll be able to turn it into a full-fledged business where people are buying my shirts and hats, mugs. I mean, I just I just put up like seven new hoodies today and I have like three or four new designs that I need to finish and get up. And so it's fun. I love it. I wish you would have said no to those guys and just stared at them. <laughs> some <laughs> other some other guy in a yarmulke you're looking for. Well, let's talk about that because uh, I'll be honest with you. you everybody I know that's Jewish in the 2A community um, is proud, but the, you'd never know. Right. Like you just never know they were Jewish. You came kicking the door down, like saying, I am the pew pew Jew. And I remember telling Jake about you a long time ago. And I remember Jake was like, no fucking way. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, because I, I think I, I honestly think you're the first person I've ever seen. that's kind of worn it. And, and just said, like, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. I mean, you'll see people that, you know, obviously would, would tip somebody off that they're Jewish. You see them walking around in a yarmulke at a show uh, or anything like that. Right. But you came through the door just being like, this is who I am. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So it's actually really funny because the Pew Pew Jew, I kind of fell into the Pew Pew Jew, right? Um, when my first book came out, I went, it was about three months after my book came out and I was trying to get endorsements for my book, just I realize now endorsements are pointless, but at the time, um, you know, it was kind of let me get endorsements because then people will buy my book. And I was trying to get Alan Gottlieb's endorsement from the head of the Second Amendment Foundation. And I emailed him. I, I sent him a copy of the book, and I never heard back. And it was at the USCCA Expo here in Dallas. I went for a couple hours, and there was Alan Gottlieb and his son Andrew. And I walked up to him, and I'm, like, freaking out, right? Because I'm like, oh, my God, that's Alan Gottlieb. And I introduced myself, and he's like, oh, my God, yes, I have your book, and I want to endorse it. I've just been so busy. And we start talking. And he goes, okay, I'm inviting you to speak at the GRPC. Now, mind you, I'm I was 33 at the time. I have not spoken publicly in 20 years since my bar mitzvah, since I was 13. <laughs> I had no idea what the gun rights policy conference is, the GRPC. I had no idea what it was. To the point where any podcast that I was on, even if it was pre-recorded, I was in the bathroom for like two hours terrified, so nervous. I had a fidget cube. I spent like, this is before you can get like knockoff brands, like the original fidget cube. I donated to their Kickstarter and like, I'm talking about, I was like this, like as I'm on the podcast and just messing with it. Cause I, I mean, freaked out, like terrified. And I'm like, yeah, I would speak at the gun, the GRPC <laughs> thinking like, okay, the gun rights policy conference, how many people are there? Like 50, 60, I can muster up enough courage. 
stupidly, I ask him, like, oh, how many people usually, you know, would I speak in front of? He goes, oh, anywhere from three to 400. I'm like, wait, excuse me? But I already said yes. So there was no backing out. I walked into my house, and my wife is like, you are white as a ghost. What <laughs> happened? And I'm like, I think I made a mistake. And I explained to her, and um, she just was she, – my wife being my wife, she's like, yeah, you know, yeah, that's going to be tough. But you said yes, so you have to do it. And, <laughs> you know, she's like, 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 did it. And um, so that was my introduction into the gun rights community, not even as an advocate. I fell into that as well once I spoke there, which was another six months later, right? So I had to – I had to think, think about, I'm nervous for, I'm nervous going on to a, a pre-recorded podcast. Now I have six months from April to like September or however long that is, five months to think about, oh my God, I'm going to be speaking in front of that many people. So I, it was like the worst five months of my life. And, you know, about a year and a half, two, about a year and a half after I spoke there and I had met a bunch of people in the 2A advocacy world who were journalists and podcasters, bloggers. Um, I was on the phone with someone because at the time I was working on my third book and he's like, you know, you're kind of like, you know, the pew pew Jew. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, that Jewish business mind of mine, like was like light bulb. And I called my illustrator and I'm like, dude, I need a logo that has a gun a star of David and the words, the pew pew Jew in it. And like three days later, this is what he comes up with, you know, my current logo. Um, and I just ran with it and, and I immediately had some ideas, um, you know, for t-shirt designs, like probably my biggest seller is my pig one. Um, for, for those, obviously you can't see it, but for those listening, I have a shirt that has a picture of a pig wearing sunglasses and a cigar mm -hmm. that says gun control is not kosher. Hilarious. And that, you know, that's one of my hottest sellers. And I, the, the ideas just kept on coming out and cupping, you know, kept flowing. And I realized, and this is going to tie back to the question you asked me earlier about the photography and graphic design that at the time I dabbled with Photoshop. I knew Photoshop relatively well, but for example, Adobe Illustrator, I didn't know super well. And all of a sudden, I'm like $800 in the pocket because I just paid my Illustrator to design eight, eight different designs. I'm like, okay, this is going to be this is gonna bankrupt me. So I forced myself to learn Adobe Illustrator so that I can uh, design my own shirts and, and ideas. Now, there's some things that are way too advanced for me. So I'm willing to pay my illustrator for that now, but to the most part, you know, I, I do all my own designs. That's pretty sweet. Um, I, I love the story. You told that on the noggin notes podcast when we, when we chatted months ago and I'd forgotten about it, but I had the same reaction. I was cracking up the whole time. Um, but I noticed in there, this is the second time now you said, well, I sort of fell into it. <laughs> uh, you sort of fell into writing children's books and you sort of fell into the, the brand of the Pew Pew Jew. And it just, it, it made me mindful that we don't get to choose our calling sometimes, you know, if not all the time. And I really appreciate that you're sharing 
hey, this thing just happened upon me and I ran with it um, because it made sense, even though it was a little scary or a lot scary. Um, and now look at you. Um, I mean, you look totally relaxed. You look like a pro uh, having interviews. Um, it, and it's really, really enjoyable listening to this. I want to go back to Mike's uh, question about the the, the, the kick in the door, I'm here, I'm a Jew and I'm going to, you know, advocate for gun rights. Cause that's yeah. something you and I discussed also on the, on, on my other podcast. It's, it's instructive to hear how you are taking a bullhorn to a community or from a community that traditionally has really tucked its head, kept its, kept its neck down and not exposed and just gone along to get along. Um, why, it's the the historical context of why do Jews not typically do that? And then um, how's that been resonating? So it's funny when I, when I took on this persona of the pew pew Jew and started rolling with it. Um, and even when I started, like I remember going to my first NRA show, I flew to Atlanta. Everyone I knew. And again, this is not, I didn't know any non-Jews really. Right. Cause I mean, I always worked with Jews and stuff like that. Everyone I knew was like, oh, you got to be careful getting into the firearms world. There, you know, there's so many anti-Semites in there. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I got to be careful. But then, like, at the same time, I'd written for Ben Shapiro for a while. So I dealt with, you know, people in the media business in terms of the, the conservative media business. And, you know, everyone was really, really accepting. You know, they, they didn't care that you're Jewish. If... Basically, if you're on our side, great. If you're not on our side, okay, well, we can have a debate. Like, that was always my introduction to working with the non-Jewish world in in politics and firearms. So I was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm sure there's anti-Semites in the gun community, but from my understanding, it doesn't seem like they care. And I'll never forget, once I started getting brand recognition and people getting my books and understanding what I'm about, I mean, I have yet to to be a, a recipient of any anti-Semitism from anyone in the gun community. It, it's been the complete opposite. People have been so supportive. People are like, yeah, it's so good to see, you know, a Jewish uh, Orthodox Jew out there promoting American freedoms, promoting the Second Amendment, having having civil discourse with people who they might disagree with but you know believing in our founding fathers and believing in our country having pride in the fact that i'm an orthodox jew i don't shy away from the fact i wear my yarmulke everywhere i go every speech i do every podcast i'm on i don't shy away from the fact that i'm an orthodox jew and i never will and if that will be my downfall then so be it but I'm not going to shy away from that. And and when you realize that the only way to have pride in yourself is to be prideful of who you are, you know, it makes life a lot easier because I'll walk into a place now and, and you know, it, it just doesn't phase me if, I mean, I, I can't even tell you, I mean, I get a, an insane amount of anti-Semitic messages on social media. Um, he really called a Nazi. Yeah, that was, oh, he's, he's yeah. like it's been I the was, exact called, opposite. <laughs> it's the exact opposite to the point that I was called a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. um, I was called a Nazi, and 
and I stupidly, the person deleted the comment before I can grab a still frame because I think they realized it was a post on Trump. And and what was interesting is I'm not a Trump guy, but I, I didn't vote for him in 2016. I'll admit that. I'm not ashamed to admit that. He did not give me a reason to believe in him as a president. I will be voting for him in 2020 because I do think he's been doing a great job. Now, I posted something because I, I call balls and strikes. If Trump does something good, awesome job. If he does something bad against the Constitution, I'll call him out on it. So he did something. I don't remember what it was, but he did something. And I was like, yeah, this is great that Trump did this, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, it was like, yeah, you're just a Nazi like Trump. And I'm like... It says the pew pew Jew. What part of Nazi? What? And um, I, I, before, like I said, I think the guy realized immediately that he just called me a Nazi, and I have the pew pew Jew in as my tagline, and um, it was great because I, I, I mean, it was fantastic. But you have that, a great sense of humor. What? I mean, yeah, you have to have a great sense of humor to kind of roll with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know my, my speech that I'm giving at the Gun Rights Policy Conference this year, the virtual one, it starts off with literally the first line of my speech is, Hitler is not such a bad guy. And <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been told that's something, a direct quote. Um, that's the reason why I don't trust kikes. I have, I love the smell of Cyclone in the morning. Because I posted a, saw, uh, I saw that one. Yeah, I posted something from uh, Apocalypse Now. You know, I mm -hmm. love the smell of napalm yeah. in the morning. So it was a funny meme, and then someone commented that one. And I just have, I just have a slew of them. And um, that's how you're opening I'm, the, the speech. Yeah, I'm, awesome. I'm just like a, yeah, that's how I'm opening my speech. Um, so th th talk about attention grabber. Yeah. Um, but I am a very self-deprecating Jew. Um, I have a good time with it. Uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid, nor am I ashamed of being a Jew. Um, I'm one of these people that if, if there is someone in the news, I talk, if there's someone in the news that does something bad, something illegal, something whatever you want to call it, right, that happens to be Jewish. That does not reflect on the entire Jewish community. And unfortunately, it's just like not all cops are bad, not all blacks are criminals. I mean, it's, it's just a mentality that people have that they associate an entire group with the, in, the actions of an individual. And, you know, it's just something that I, I, I do. And, and like you said, I, I came into this industry and – not knowing a thing, not knowing anybody, and I won't shy away from a fight. I won't back down. I believe what I believe, and you know, I'm not. I'm not in a a contest to see how many people I can get to like me. You don't have to like what I say. Um, that's fine. Your uh, yeah. Your 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 faith is a point of real strength, and I respect the hell out of it um you and i were chatting the other day on the phone and i was like dude you got to repeat that on the podcast um because <laughs> i i sent you a, a 
an article about something that was going on in uh, in the Holy Land that was being done for the first time ever, and I was like, "Help explain this to me because I don't I don't get it." And you did, and and you were it was it was absolutely great. But what that led to was a conversation about the rituals within Orthodox Judaism, which you follow and it, and to which you adhere very very strictly. And it made me reflect on some of the the values in my own faith, but it also in my own character and my own family. And I was like, man, I gotta I gotta practice a little harder on keeping some boundaries. Um, I would really enjoy hearing that again, the explanation of why you do the things you do with your family, uh, with your wife. Um, you know, share as much as you want or as little as you want to the to the audience. But I just found it super fascinating that what we see as you know, may look a little odd or crazy. You know, the kosher thing you mentioned, like, what's up with that? Um, it has its roots in history and it has meaning uh, symbolically, but it also has practical application. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, you know, recapture that the best you can. Yeah. Um, so Judaism is not an easy religion. Um, we do have a lot of restrictions that, you know, a lot of people would look at and, they'll be like, oh, hell no. Like, no, no, I, it's just not happening. Um, when someone wants to convert to Judaism, and I'm, I'm talking about orthodox conversion, one thing we do is we try to turn people away. We don't make it easy because we want people to understand what they're getting, and we want them to understand that if you convert to Judaism, you need to follow the laws. So we want to make sure that they really want it. So it's, uh, it, it takes a while to convert, but, you know, we turn people away. There are many things in Judaism that, yes, I'm a devout Orthodox Jew. Um, I love my religion. I, I, I believe it is the, the correct religion, the right religion. That doesn't mean I'm going to judge anybody else for whatever, you know, for whoever, whatever they worship. These are my feelings and my feelings alone. Now, that doesn't mean that I I enjoy everything about my religion. I, I'm not going to be – I know that the term is cafeteria Catholic, but it definitely falls with cafeteria Jews as well, right? I'm not going to pick and choose parts of my religion that I like and disagree with. The religion is the religion, and it comes with bad and it comes with good. Um, I know one of the things we talked about um, is the idea of it's called Nita, and what that basically is. And I'm guessing I'm guessing this is the one you wanted me to talk about. Yeah, uh, yeah. So what the idea is is that every month when your wife gets a period, you need to separate from your wife. And what I mean by that is. You, you usually sleep in separate beds. You can be in the same room, but you sleep in separate beds. You can't touch each other. There's no high fives. There's no holding hands. There's no eating from the same dish. It, it's a 100% complete separation. Um, it usually goes for about 12 days. You know, she has the, 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 the bleeding cycle, and then there has to be five days of cleanliness, of, of no bleeding. And, you know... It's a pain in the ass. I will not deny that. I mean, 
when, when you are with the woman you love and you have to separate to the point where you cannot touch them um, at all for 12 days, sometimes even a little longer every month, uh, it's rough. I mean, it's really rough, especially in 2020 when every other advertisement, every other TV show you watch has these drop-dead gorgeous models or actresses wearing no clothing. It's very difficult to just sit there and, you know, not get turned on nowadays. And then obviously, you know, you want to go to your wife, but you can't. Um, It's annoying. I hate it, but it makes sense. And the reason why it makes sense is because when you cannot touch or be near your wife for 12 days, the, the renewal of love, that renewal of excitement, of anticipation of being able to be with them again keeps a relationship so healthy and so strong because you can't wait. It, it's, it's like the first night, it's like the first time you ever slept with your wife ever. It's, it's fresh, it's new and exciting. And to have that feeling every single month, I mean, th- there's no better way to strengthen a relationship. So, like I said, um, it's a pain. I hate it, but I do it because it makes perfect sense. I don't have to like it, but if it's if I feel it's the right thing, it's the right thing. Yeah, it's worth um, it. It's it's 100% worth it. It's 100% worth it. So, um, you know, uh, Judaism is filled with things like that, uh, but if you are a devout follower then you know you take the bad with the good uh and it's that simple do do you find that your discipline is stronger in other areas too because of the the practice of uh strict adherence to your your laws oh yeah 100 percent. there's some things that i mean look i'm no i'm not perfect um i'm no saint by any means um like i said earlier i think my son my four-year-old is the devil's spawn which would make me the devil um, but, or my wife, you know, there, there's definitely, I, I'm by, you know, just, I, I'm human. I struggle with a lot of things. Um, there are many times that I'll falter and I, and I will fail at a test that God's sending me, or if there's something I need to do, um, perfect example, last night, uh, Jews pray three times a day. We have morning prayers, afternoon prayers, and evening prayers. At about 4 o'clock yesterday, I went with a friend of mine. Uh, he needed some help doing some videography stuff. We left the house, my house, at 4. I didn't get home till 8. I completely forgot to do afternoon prayers. Completely slipped my mind. It happens. You're, you're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just pick up, move on, and, and try to do better next time. Try, try to make an effort to remember, oh, I'm out now. Let me take a 10-minute break to do my prayers, and, you know, that's it. So it, it's there definitely are challenges. Um, there are many times that you will falter, you will fail. But like everything, if it's something that you believe in, then, you know, you, you just bounce back and – maybe ask God for forgiveness and try to do better next time. How, how does forgiveness work in 
Judaism. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Jesus follower, and we believe that Jesus died for all sins, and so we seek forgiveness through uh, through God by praying through the Holy Spirit and asking uh, for forgiveness. And, and even though it's it's a little bizarre because we know that we're all forgiven if we believe and we've you know, we've convicted ourselves and our hearts, um, but yet we find this weird paradox occurring where it's like, um, you should go ask God again for forgiveness. It's like, well, I was already forgiven. But how does how does that concept work in your religion? So, you know, there's different aspects, right? So if, if you do something like, for example, like missing one of the prayers, that's between me and God. So so really the idea is, you know, I ask God for forgiveness and you know just say, hey, I'll try to do better next time. If you don't make a conscious effort to do better, is it really a sincere apology or asking right. for forgiveness, right? So obviously you're judged based on that. Now, if you if you if God sees you making an effort and you just forget again, then yes, hey God, I'm sorry. I, I really am trying hard. Please forgive me. Um, he knows you're it human, is, right? It, it really is that simple. If you're making a, a conscious effort to change, then yes, you will be forgiven. Um, now, it gets a little more creative let's call it when you sin against somebody so um let's say uh you flaked on the podcast you didn't show up <laughs> exactly uh no you know let, let's let's say you're at a, uh you and you and your buddy are 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 somewhere and he's like hey man i gotta run to the bathroom you're at a restaurant and you see a, a five dollar bill kind of sticking out of his wallet he left on the table and you kind of take that without telling him you know um, that's something you, you, to get a real forgiveness, you are supposed to go up to the individual that you wronged, explain to them what you did, that you truly are sorry, pay back, obviously, if you can. Um, and that would be considered forgiveness. You don't necessarily have to turn to God and say, please forgiving me, please forgive me for stealing from, right? So there, there's, there's, I know we talked about it on the phone. There's Ben Adam Lemakom, which basically means um, uh, between man and his place, which translates to between man and God. Mm-hmm. And then Ben Adam Lechavero, between man and friend. Mm-hmm. So there, there's two different types of apologies and forgivenesses that you need to attain. Um, like one of my one of my good friends every year. I mean, this guy is has a heart of gold, the nicest guy I've ever met in my life, and he just makes it so easy to just to just poke fun at him, and he takes it all in stride, right? He's just he's one of those guys. He's just so overly nice, and and you just can't help but make fun of him. And every year, I'm just like. Dude, I know I asked you forgiveness for the exact same jokes I made last year, but please forgive me. He's like, yeah, but, you know, like, you didn't stop. I'm like, I'm trying, but you, it's your fault. It's your fault. You make it so easy. And he's like, yeah, I forgive you. And, like, and the thing is, he really does forgive you because he's a nice guy. But, like, you know, you just, you can't stop. So, um, just haven't, yeah. Speaking of renewal, um, I was really fascinated in your um, uh, roughly what is it a twenty-five hour shutdown that you do every week, and that's and that's a law too. That's a commandment. Um, explain how that 
renews you when you when you disconnect from everything you stop work you you truly enjoy a sabbath i think you call it shabbat right shabbat yeah so our 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 sabbath starts friday night at sundown and usually ends about called 24 plus hours later right so sundown plus some time um in that time period there are no phones there's no computers there's no tv there's no driving um, if you want a light on in your home, you either have to have it set on a timer to go on and off, or you just leave it on. Um, so it's interesting. Like I, I know the last, I would say the last six weeks, me, my wife and my three kids, we'll, we've just spent all day, all Saturday, you know, we'll go to temple, we'll come home, have a great meal. And then like, what do you do? So, you know, we'll play games and stuff, but like we've been getting very into puzzles. So we'll be doing these, these 750, 1,000-piece puzzles, and there's, there, there's no one looking at their phone or, or like, what were the sports scores or, you know, what's the next thing everyone's upset about in the world. And, like, all of that doesn't exist for 24 hours. It's you, your family. A lot of times we will get together with friends, um, you know, it's just there's no there's no outside source coming in. It's literally you concentrating on family time and allowing you to just renew. And, and it, it's it, it's hard to explain if if you if you've never done it, right? It's like you know you always see these memes and you see like this little cabin in the woods and it's like can you live here for 24 hours or, you know, live here for 24 hours, no electricity and get a million dollars. Can you do it? And like Jews are like, <laughs> yeah, we can do it. <laughs> we do it every week, you know, like not hard. Um, so it's just one of those things. It just, it really renews the soul because there's no negativity. I mean, yes, obviously you can get into fights with people that you're with, but there's no negativity. There's no, it, it's just, family time, friend time, um, giving each other time of day because it's not like you're talking to somebody and you're like, oh, text message. Oh, look, update on that, update on this, uh, news breaking here. Um, there's nothing like that for 24-plus for hours every week, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's become really trendy to, quote-unquote, unplug. Um, but then if you make it a, a ritual and a habit – you're constantly renewing, which means it's not as necessary to set aside the, you know, the week in the woods or whatever. Uh, and then you get frustrated when you can't do it because you have to sacrifice all this stuff and you got to carve out time and take time off work. And so it's like, if you can do it just weekly, um, I mean, weekly sounds like a lot. It sounds heavy. In fact, the idea of putting together a thousand piece puzzle with my family without any interruptions or breaks gives me anxiety, uh, probably because I've been conditioned by the devices to be, you know, stimulus, stimulus, stimulus. And, and if we could just turn down that stimulus on a regular basis and incorporate it into our lives, I think we'd all be a lot healthier. And it sounds like you are, you're very, very balanced. And maybe, maybe people look at that like a stodgy old rigid uh, adherence to ritual or, you know, whatever. But like you said, it has a practical purpose. And that practical purpose is to refresh. And uh, then it doesn't become such a chore to do it uh, at the lake in the middle of summer, you know, around kids' schools or whatever. 
Um, I, I think that's awesome. I think we could all benefit a lot more from from implementing customs like that into our lives, you know, separate and apart from Judaism. How do you cook food, by the way? So we Friday night, my wife cooks, you know, everything and warms it up right before the Sabbath. And right when the Sabbath starts, basically, basically my wife turns the oven off, keeps the food inside so that like 20 minutes later, the food's still hot. But on Sabbath day, we either will make, you know, chicken salad, something that's cold, or um, a lot of Jews use hot plates where you ha- you plug it in the counter with a timer. Hmm. So, you know, the timer goes off at 9 in the morning. You put your food on the hot plate, maybe cover it to make sure that it really heats up and then, you know, shuts off at 12, serve the food, and you have warm food. So it's the act of doing the work of flipping the switch, unplugging the thing in, doing that that you want to – avoid so that you're not it's a it's it's not working right you, anything that looks right. like work so you walk exactly. to walk to temple too yeah we walk to temple um walk to temple uh, even rain or rain or like i said i live in texas rain or 147,000 degrees <laughs> uh you walk to temple and um yeah it's you know it's when you've been doing it your whole life it's really easy to do uh, I have a lot of friends. A lot of my friends are like, you know, you come to the NRA show every year, but you go on Friday and you go on Sunday. You're never there for the busiest day. And my response to them is my religion dictates that I Saturday is my Sabbath. If I'm going to become successful for my trip to NRA show, it will happen on Friday or it will happen on Sunday. It will not happen on Saturday. Saturday will be a waste of time for me. Maybe hang out with friends, but it would be a waste of time for me. Um, you know, uh, luckily, I, I going back to Alan Gottlieb and his son Andrew, uh, they have been just unbelievably, just unbelievable to me uh, since I, I met them, um, to the point where I've been speaking at this gun rights policy conference for the last three years, but they know that if I'm speaking, every they, they book my speaking slot for Sunday morning. They mm. know not to book me on a Saturday because they know I won't show up. So they they work with me. That, I mean, they're they're pretty amazing, and it's just something that you know. Um, don't care what the only regret I have, and it's not a real regret, but you know, you have like. All these big, uh, I, I know Mike knows about them, you know, all these big uh, machine gun shoots and uh, like Kevin Dixie's course that I, I've been dying to take. That Everything is like Saturday, like Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. And there's so many things that I would like to do as someone who works in the firearms industry, but I just can't because, you know, it's on Saturday and it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I want to, I mean, we, we're pushing up on an hour and a half now and i want to make sure that we're respectful of everybody's time and schedules um mike always asks the, his favorite question to to you know wrap up the podcast but before we get to that i want to make sure that we've covered all the bases um did you have anything else that you wanted to discuss mike or yehuda i'm, I'm good i'm ready for my question i'll just be sitting here queued up <laughs> no I'm, I'm i'm good we we got to discuss some things that um, I've actually never got to talk about, like especially the the depression stuff, like 
not that I need to get it off my chest, but that's not something that people have ever asked. So no, I'm, I'm good. When you're and you're kind of a comedian by trade, I mean, maybe not professionally on stage, uh, given the, <laughs> given the stage fright that you've had your whole life, but but your your memes are incredibly funny, and your your comments are very insightful and poignant, and they're always educational, and I that's why I follow you. Maybe you should tell everybody how to how to get a hold of you too. Uh, yeah, so my website is thepewpewju.com. That's p e w well the p e w p e w ju.com. Um, I got a lot of great swag and just letting everyone know if you decide to get the gun control is not kosher shirt, it is not anti-Semitic. If you're not Jewish, I get that question all the time. Is it anti-Semitic if we wear it? It is not anti-Semitic and it's not cultural appropriation. <laughs> By all means, buy it. What? Send pictures. Why do people ask know. that? I, I think they think maybe because... If another Jew sees a non-Jew wearing anything Jewish, it's just stupid. It's stupid, but I tell people, like, no, don't buy one shirt. Buy one for you and your wife. So so if I get in trouble out on the streets, I can just refer them to you, the Hebrew hammer. I'll be like, you take it up with Yehuda. (laughs) 100%. Mike, you have my cell phone number. Just give me a call. I will talk to you down. As long as it's not on a Saturday. <laughs> if I get caught out there on a Saturday, I'm done. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, but uh, thepewpewju.com, and if you want to follow me, um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at thepewpewju. One thing I will tell people, because I get this a lot, people will hear me on the podcast, and then they'll look me up on Facebook as well. I have two Facebook pages. I have a public one, and then I have a private one. Not to sound like a jerk, if I don't know who you are, I am not going to accept the friend request. So if you want to reach out to me on my public one and introduce yourself, you have a better chance of uh, getting onto my private one. But that's uh, the best ways uh, to reach me right now. Your turn, Miguel. Okay. Well... I want to thank you for your honesty um, with all these questions. I, I, I'm like Jake. I was really touched by your story. Uh, you know, after after you've been let go by your your publishing company, I think that's an amazing segment of this show. And in that segment, you you did focus on your your children, right? Your son brought you to a good space when you were in a little bit of a crisis, but. Besides that, and now that you're kind of cognizant of that and you're aware, how do you tend to your mental health now? Um, <laughs> no, I, well, a, a couple of things, you know. First off, and I know, again, we're talking about firearms and mental health, so I will just tell you, going out to the range God, I mean, you want to talk about a stress reliever and something that'll clear your head. I have, I got a, Jake, I don't know if you know what they are, but Mike, I know you for sure do the micro Roni, micro conversion. So I got one of those with a little red dot on top and I'll put a 33 round mag in my Glock 19 and I'll go to the range and um, I go to this outdoor range about 45 minutes from my house that has bays and metal targets. I'll go there for like two hours just put on some music while I'm just shooting back and forth. And honestly, that is something that will 
absolutely clear my head. But if I cannot get out to the range, um, you know, I kind of just let it pass. Um, I continuously think that I'm that in my mind that like, no, you know, you're a strong individual. Yeah. Life throws crap at you. Uh, God will test you. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you can let it beat you or you can overcome it. Sometimes it's much harder to do, uh, you know, but I mean, that's, I mean, it's a good question because I, I don't really think I do anything in particular except I kind of just, you know, like I tell my kids, I kind of just cowboy up, says life sucks. Sometimes you just got to fight through the crap that's running in your head. If I need, if I feel the need to talk to somebody, I mean, I know Mike, I've called you a few times to ask you for advice on certain issues. You know, if you feel the need to talk to somebody, find someone that you're close with that you, that you feel comfortable with. Um, but I just, I don't know if, if what, what do you call it? Uh, re- repress the feelings. Is that what you call it? Right. I don't know if I would just repress the feelings and then I just cowboy up and I say, Hey, you know, just move on. But I don't think I actually have like a, a real, a, a real, uh, game plan you know, in terms of my mental health, I just, I just go through life. And like I said, this too shall pass. Right. I, th- I think you do. And, and you're not quite aware of it. So I usually, I don't, I try not to talk when people are well, sharing this, but, yeah. but this is poignant. And you asked, uh, is a repression. You, you need me, you need me to lie down? <laughs> yeah. Could, would you mind? Please? Yeah, hold on. Don't look hold at on. me. <laughs> don't look at me. All right. I'm ready. Avert your eyes. Um, no, so it's self-talk. You have excellent positive self-talk. You tell yourself that you're strong. You tell yourself that things will pass. You tell yourself that you can get through it. And the difference between repression, which you mentioned, and suppression, and there is a very distinct difference, is that repression is when we when we sh- shove things down or set them aside unconsciously. Suppression is when we acknowledge the, the negative feelings that we don't want, and then we purposely set them aside. So we can go through life's various circumstances and have negative feelings arise, recognize them, wrap our arms around them, own them, and go, I don't really like this right now, and just and just move on. That's suppression, and that's a healthy, adaptive way of dealing with the environment and all the, the things that are thrown at us. Uh, repression we don't necessarily want, and we want to be precise with our language on that. But you have incredible self-talk, and that's one of the things that I try to hammer with people is like notice what you're saying to yourself. Notice, uh, you, you, you mentioned something really great early on about um, you are what you eat, but it's, you are what you read. You are what you digest. Anything you take into your psyche is going to influence your, your behavioral patterns. And you've become aware of that. Cause we were texting some time ago about like, you know, <laughs> social media and all the cascade of negativity some months ago. And I was like, just get off social media. You're like, I can't, this is my, <laughs> this is what I do for a living. It's how I sell shirts and, and books. And, um, I was like, Oh man, yeah, you're right. So like just being aware of what you're taking in, noticing how it's affecting you, and and just having that awareness to say I don't I don't want to do this anymore you know, for for the time being or whatever so that's super super healthy I really I think that's great advice it's great wisdom notice your self talk and you know to to that point about God's going to test you I was told once that 
God never gives you a test he doesn't think you can pass. And I, th- I think that's worth listening to as well. So if you, if you believe you're being tested, um, it's actually quite a, a measure of confidence to say, oh, here's, here's an opportunity. Let's see how I can get through this one. Game on, God. Yeah. Um, I, I, will, I will say, um, I know this kind of goes against that whole masculinity thing, but at the same time, I think, you know, we're all human. A good cry goes a long way. It does. It does. There's, there's actually wow. a physiological benefit to that, too, because when we cry, our tears uh, contain cortisol. And, and when the cortisol, which is a stress hormone that uh, is often associated with fight or flight or defensiveness, uh, when that builds up in our bodies, it, ha- it has a negative impact on a cellular level and it will deteriorate our, our body functioning. So crying is not just, it doesn't just feel good. It actually is physiologically beneficial to the, to the body. So I'm glad you mentioned that it is, it is quite masculine to be in touch with oneself and own one's own emotions. Um, that's great, great conclusion there. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Anytime you want me to come on, just let me know. Um, I'm usually free, and uh, if, if I'm not, I'll definitely make time for you guys. Just not. Yeah, maybe Saturday. you guys can come on and explain this crying thing to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I just did. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. Hey, actually, though, on 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 another note too, I wanted to point out. Thank you for talking about the range thing, because um, it's kind of like Jake and I's mission to make mental health professionals understand that somebody saying they went to the range and fired off a couple thousand rounds. You know, I think more people need to understand that that is a way of stress relief. It's a way to get rid of anxiety. Um, Although that, that act on itself to someone who's not in the gun community, they would have anxiety doing that, but that's where we need the understanding. So I think it's great that, you know, that is one of your methods to, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I should have mentioned this earlier, and I, I know we're coming, you know, to the end, but um, to, to all the mental health professionals who, who are listening, I want to say that I have a 11-year-old son who suffers from severe anxiety, and my wife and I were at our wits, and we didn't, we, we sent him for therapy, and it was working, but we're talking about he was still so anxious, um, shaking I mean, he making himself sick. If we were going to go, if my wife and I were going to go on a date night, he would make himself sick uh, to the point we felt guilty leaving him. I introduced my son to firearms at a, I mean, not, not to actual shooting at age eight from the minute he put a gun in his hand after obviously learning all the proper safety protocols his anxiety at the range went out the window. It was gone. He was a new kid. He was able to laser-like focus, followed all safety protocols again. The first time I took him shooting, he was the, the lane next to him was doing full auto. And my son was shooting a little 22 caliber, and he didn't flinch. He just kept focused the anxiety went out the window. It disappeared. And I've realized that not only does it, is it a stress reliever, but the more you do it and the better you get at it, it also becomes a tool that you can use to measure your 
I don't know the right word, but I want, I don't want to say happiness, but happiness, because when you're, when you're going to arrange, unless you have three or four targets set up and you're able to go back, forth, back, forth between each target and hit the target that, that the, um, uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like that, that accomplishment of you being good at it just explodes and, and you, it's just, you get that stress reliever, but you also get a, a incredible self uh, of uh, uh, self efficacy. It's self efficacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're building self efficacy. Yeah, it, it's really, I mean, firearms, if used correctly, are, are such a powerful tool. And I'm not talking about just self defense, I'm talking about emotional well being. It's amazing. Great testimony. I think more people need to hear that. Well, Thanks, man. Appreciate your time. Um, Mike, thanks for uh, always dropping in with good questions. And, um, and I mean, you introduced me to him, so I appreciate that, too. Now I got a friend. On behalf of the WTTA crew, uh, we uh, all wish you great mental wellness and defense of your Second Amendment rights. They do go hand in hand. They are not mutually exclusive. Boys, have a wonderful rest of your week. Audience, see you next time.